0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world. From the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to be talking about emotions and the politics of the corona world. In the framework of our Big Thinkers Quarantine series I had the honour this week to talk to Carolina Vigura who's an ECFR council member as well as being a fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies in Berlin and a research associate at the Institute of Sociology at the University of Walsall. She is a historian of ideas who's been helping us understand the role that emotions play in politics, and in particular in our response to COVID-19. And she argues that in many ways it's the emotional illiteracy of liberals which have allowed populists to remake the politics in her own native Poland as well as in other countries.
1: When we talk about emotions during the COVID pandemic, namely what we all experience today, is not only fear, suspicion and uncertainty, but also a certain kind of grief. And it is a collective grief, but this grief is rather not enough spoken about. It is a grief connected with loss of old habits, loss of old normality, loss of connection. And also to, to mention all the different stages of grief that we can be in. There is denial, so first we think, No, this will not affect us, uh, neither me or my family. Then there comes anger. We start to think, you make me stay at home, and I'm extremely angry with it because I have to get rid of my old habits and my old normality. Then there is bargaining. So if I stay for two weeks at home, will it be enough? Can I go to work afterwards? Then there is sadness when we realize that we actually don't know when this is going to end. And then there is acceptance when we understand that this is really happening and we have to figure out how to proceed. When we come to speaking about liberal democracy and about will it survive this time, we have to to understand that exactly like in the field of emotions, where the COVID-19 has been a catalyst of emotions, like the emotion of fear, for example, or grief, in politics it is also a kind of catalyst. So in those countries where liberal democracy was respected before the pandemic, probably there is a chance that liberal democracy will not be affected. But in countries where liberal democracy was anyway in a very uncomfortable place, probably the consolidation of populism will take place. And just last but not least, I would like to make a remark about silence. Silence, I believe, was the most striking thing during the beginning of the quarantine. Silence matters. It matters in public sphere, because Montesquieu, and not only him, is associating silence with despotism. So whilst the citizens are busy at their homes trying to survive, the politicians, can be very busy in making sure that the special measures will be longer-term measures. And I do believe that this is the biggest challenge connected with the time of COVID-19.
0: I'll be joined by Tara Varma, who's the head of ECFR's office in Paris, Piotr Buras, who's the head of our office in Warsaw, and returning once again to the podcast is Jeremy Shapiro, our research director, who's just back from the United States where emotions play no role in politics at all. So thank you very much to all of you for joining. Why don't we start with you, Piotr? You heard... Carolina's remarks, do you agree with her that this pandemic could act as a a catalyst for the consolidation of populist power in, in Europe?
2: Yes, definitely. I think this is pretty obvious um, especially looking at at countries where some erosion of uh, of democracy could have been observed also over the last few years like especially Poland and, and Hungary. We we see that the silence Carolina mentioned in her speech, a silence meaning that basically in the, the public sphere, voices of citizens, voices of public engagement of citizens are not uh, really heard that this situation, dominated by this political silence, uh, is being exploited by those in power—autocrats, illiberals. and and this is really happening uh, under our eyes. In in Hungary, we have uh, definitely consolidation of of Orban's uh, power thanks to the recent legislation and rule by decree. And in Poland, we have a very interesting, controversial, and very important, I think, uh, discussion about uh, the. Um, timing of the presidential election. And this is and not only the timing, but basically the circumstances uh, under which this election is supposed to take
0: place. On the 6th of May, polls learned that the election which they're expecting on the 10th of day wasn't going to go ahead. So when is it going to happen now?
2: We don't know. Probably by the end of June, maybe in the beginning of July. But, but the very fact that presidential election in a democratic EU member state, was de facto cancelled just a few days before the scheduled date of the election. It's something truly unprecedented. And, and this decision was taken completely outside of the constitutional order, basically, because there, there would have been ways to postpone the election in a way which would have been in line with the constitution, but it didn't take place. The, the election was de facto cancelled, and now we have a New election, new presidential election, where new candidates could probably will be allowed to run. It should be actually the case. But it, the, the whole discussion and the whole circumstances really show how far we have gone. And and coming back to your question, is it's important to say that the only reason that we have this mess and, and this, this huge political controversy and polarizing society, polarizing the political scene even more than it was the case before, the the only reason is that the ruling party wanted to hold this election as quickly as possible in order to prevent a scenario in which uh, the democratic economic downturn will hit the popularity rates of the incumbent president and possibly prevent his re-election. So this is definitely, I think, Poland is is a very good example of how this pandemic is being used by autocrats to consolidate power. Of course, it is by far not certain if this strategy in the end proves to be successful because um, the very fact that the election was in the end not held on the 10th of May as initially planned and, and um, against the determination of the party leader Kaczynski and, and the government shows that this government has no longer such a solid political base in the parliament and in the in the medium term also in the society so i think we have already entered a period of erosion of pis power but still we have a you observe is a is a fight to to consolidate the power and to to defend parties' dominance on the on the political scene
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things you talked about feel like the kind of old rational politics about power realities, the state of the economy, etc. I mean, it'd be interesting to hear how much um, of this is being driven by emotion, how much of different... State Poland and other countries are as a result of of COVID nineteen, and whether Carolina is right to think that we're in a in a kind of state of grief where fear, suspicion, uncertainty are dominant. But maybe before we do that, we should bring in a couple of other countries so we got a kind of comparative frame. Tari, you're sitting in Paris, which is one of the countries which has been worst affected by the the crisis. I'm sort of wondering how you feel. Well, not so much how you feel, I'm obviously interested in that, but how the French feel (laughs) at the moment. It's a a kind of extraordinary situation for many places, but the French don't seem to be reacting in exactly the same way as as many of the other countries. In a lot of other countries, people have rallied around the flag once the crisis appeared, whereas in in France there seems to be quite a lot of unhappiness and discontent with, with President Macron and the policies that he's pursuing.
3: So I would say actually things started pretty well for President Macron initially. The French public did rally around the flag. Um, his, His numbers really bumped in the opinion polls like never before, to be honest. The French public felt like The government was communicating regularly with them, informing them. But things, as often with the French public, did turn sour when in relations to their government. People feel and are still feeling that the government is probably lying to them in terms of mask procurement and the capacity to test. There is, as always in France, this tendency to compare to Germany, which has at least seems uh, to have weathered the storm much better than, than most other European countries have. In terms of Macron himself, I think the emotional aspect is really interesting. When he came to power in 2017, he pledged that he would be a Jupiterian president, that he would be the one to address the press and the people when he decided on his own tempo and that he was not going, not going to let uh, his emotions overwhelm him. And, and I think in that, he, he it was a not-so-subtle comparison to what had happened during the Olong presidency. And in the management of the COVID crisis, we've seen an evolution of his attitude in three phases, I would say. The first phase, uh, beginning March, was quite optimistic and positive. He asked people to keep going to the theater, to the cinemas, to keep going out, not to shutter themselves totally from their own lives. Then we experience a dramatic change once the lockdown recommendations are announced, and he adopts an extremely martial tone, much closer to the the Jupiter and Michael that we had known until now. He spoke of a sanitary war. It was really a martial. Um, Uh, lexicon, and it was mirrored to many speeches that Hollande had given uh, when when it came to terrorist attacks in France and the necessity for the French people to come together in this difficult moment. And then mid-April, a month ago, he gave this speech where he announced the May 11th end of lockdown possibility, and he said himself that he had changed, that he was a changed man, that he had learned a lot, that everyone in France should change, that we should listen to our emotions more and be better people because there were better days that were going to come in. And so we've seen quite this this very radical shift in the fact that he seemed to be a lot more in touch with his own emotions. And that was quite a rosy picture for him. The only problem is that in front of this rosy picture of a leader capable of listening and and being more in touch with his emotion is what Françoise Fresseau, this columnist from Le Monde, called the neurasthenic French people. And so it seems there are these two entities, the president and the French people, not really being able to communicate on the same level of their own emotions.
0: The US is now uh, the epicentre of the COVID crisis. And the president's definitely adopted a, a different emotional register from, from his immediate predecessor. He seems to have been a master of tuning into some of the, the feelings of grievance and anger and frustration that have bedeviled large parts of America uh, pre-COVID. How does the, the COVID crisis change the, the kind of emotional landscape in the US?
4: Yeah, not at all. Um, it's quite extraordinary the way in which the COVID crisis, I think in contrast to some other countries, has been slotted right into the sort of existing tribal divisions in American politics, complete with their with the same sort of Emotional registers that both of those tribes specialize in. So the, the Trump, you know, Trump has ruled almost entirely through uh, emotions. His administration is essentially a triumph of emotion over reason. And it's the principal ones, as you mentioned, are fear and anger So and suspicion. So uh, along the lines that Carolina talked about. And so it's very normal uh, within that context, although not normal within any other context, for Trump to be saying this virus came from outside, this virus is an attack upon us, and the way that we can, we can conquer it is by shutting ourselves off, by banning travel. That was the first thing he did. Was banned travel from China and then from Europe, and to label this as a Chinese virus, and uh, to say that that it's not our fault, that the fact that the U.S. has you know six uh, percent of the world's population and uh, a third of the coronavirus cases is just a coincidence, and that that has nothing to do with anything, that this is really a sort of Chinese plot against us, and that really fits very well into the sort of the emotional register that he had created with his base regarding immigration, regarding the idea that the threats to America came from outside and that they could be cured by, by walls and by oceans.
0: But how come his poll ratings haven't gone up anymore? Because it does sound like a made-for-Trump crisis in many ways.
4: Well, because the, the tribes that were created already existed. His poll ratings also haven't gone down. Fundamentally, they're the saying there's been no rally around the flag, but that's because Trump doesn't carry a national flag he carries a flag for his base and his his emotional register is meant to appeal only can appeal to that 48% or whatever it is of the public that is willing to support him i guess more like 43 to 45 and so you can see that on the democratic side they have a they have a sort of different emotional register it's quite extraordinary there it is really a lot more about um fear of disease and fear of social breakdown and that is something that that he you know he doesn't he doesn't not only not only does he not appeal to that he is he's the bogeyman in that he is precisely what they fear and so because the corona virus episode has slotted into that existing tribal division and that existing emotional division nothing has changed in terms of the president's popularity
0: Poland in in that respect is probably the the European Union country most like the US where you have these kind of well established and tribal ways of looking at politics with separate media, separate political parties, a different kind of reality, particularly between, you know, East and West and and between Warsaw and, and the countryside. Does what Jeremy said resonate for you as well? Absolutely, it does. We, we talked before
2: about how this pandemic consolidates the, the autocratic grip on power, but it, the same is true for the consolidation of these tribal divisions. And And we, we conducted a survey in, in Poland just a few weeks um, ahead of the planned presidential election. And, and we asked people about their fears, about their emotions, about their attitudes. And that's become pretty clear that these two tribes, which we have in Poland the liberals and supporters of the of the PIS. They they basically the the division between them is very very deep and uh, and that they for example the the trust in the in the government and and the president and. Uh, when it comes to the managing of the crisis, is still very high among the supporters of the ruling party. Basically, nothing has changed. The support for the for the president, like in the U.S., is still basically at the same level as it as it was before. So, so the pandemic did not have any any impact. So, so yes, I think this is this consolidation of this tribal division is, is very very clear, and and it's something which which is remarkable and and one perhaps interesting aspect of that is also based upon our, upon our surveys as a approaches to Europe. And uh, we asked, uh, for example, the question, whom people in Poland should count on? Uh, the European Union, the U.S., our own uh, nation state, or perhaps we should look for different alliances. And And it's quite interesting that, that the half of the Polish population says that uh, in this particular crisis and and, and, in the current international situation, we should uh, basically count on our own. And this percentage is particularly high in the electorate uh, of the PIS. And the same is true when it comes to the other questions related to Europe, where we see that that this emotional attachment uh, to the nation state, to the national sovereignty is very, very strong in the electorate of the PIS is much less uh, strong in the the rest of the the society, and that this is one of those issues which emotionally and intellectually divides Poland uh, stronger than actually anything else. I'm not sure if this is directly related to the corona crisis, certainly not, but I think the corona crisis and the national European responses to it, I think, can solidify this division and and even deepen it.
0: And do you think the same could happen in France? Tara, do you think that this could actually be something which makes the unimaginable imaginable that Marine Le Pen could win the next election there?
3: I mean, anything is always possible. To be honest, populists in France have not gained anything from this crisis. Contrary to what most commentators predicted at the beginning, both Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the head of La France Insoumise, the far-left party, and Marine Le Pen on the far right have not seen any bump uh, in their numbers in the opinion polls. Quite the contrary, when the French population is asked whether they believe that they would have handled this crisis better, the answer is an overwhelming no. Despite that, uh, we can see that so the mainstream right has still not... Uh, managed to rally behind one national leader who could be a contender in the opposition to Emmanuel Macron. And the same basically is happening on the left, with the mainstream left, with the Socialist Party. So in a way, we are still in this totally scattered political landscape where Emmanuel Macron had totally obliterated the opposition three years ago. What we're seeing now, and that is one element that I find quite worrying, is the rise of this uh, scientist called Didier Raoult, There was a profile of him in the New York Times for our English-speaking audience, if if that is interesting, and who has been the person who's who's been saying in France for a while now that hydroxychloroquine is a really good and effective medicine against the COVID virus, that it should be used massively. His uh, science and, and methodological research has been put into question quite widely now. But he is amongst the most popular rising political figures in France right now. He is someone whom Emmanuel Macron could be quite worried of. And actually, I think he has shown these signs of worries because he went to visit him in his institute in the south of France in Marseille a few weeks ago. And that led to another controversy in France, whether, you know, the president, the French president was legitimizing someone who is vastly controversial and contested in his field. Uh, was it a way to try and obliterate his rising political figure, or was it a way to say that we need to consider any options? Seeing the the, the massive danger of the virus, you need to to imagine that this is the person whom Donald Trump said of that uh, someone might have found uh, a cure to the to the virus. So he he's quite listened to in conspiracy theories circles. But he is one of the rising figures and I, I would be actually more worried about him than the other more classical political figures we've seen in France for a while now.
0: So, Jeremy, why don't we end with the US presidential elections? Do you think that Corona is, I mean, but from what he said before, you don't think that the Corona crisis has changed anything at all, except maybe it will change whether the, the election happens. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I think that there's two ways that that sort of corona crisis can indirectly affect the U.S. election. The first is it can tank the economy. And, you know, if you're out of a job, I don't think you're super interested in why and why you're out of that job. And uh, typically speaking, that has come back to haunt the incumbent president, regardless of the reason. And, you know, the U.S. unemployment fig- figures released last week were 14.7%, which is the highest unemployment level that the United States has had since the Great Depression. If that's still present in the fall, that's going to be a massive drag on, on President Trump. I think the second way is the more insidious way, which is that if the health care scare is still here, there's some question as to how to carry out the election and whether people will be afraid to go to the polls and whether the polls will really work. And this could play to the advantage of the Republicans if they chose to use it. And given their history, they choose to use every advantage they have. I guess what we already know, what the tribal division tells us is we basically, with only slight exaggeration, already know how everyone in America will vote. What we don't know is who will turn out to the election, and we don't know whether their votes will be counted. And so I think what coronavirus offers is an ability to change that turnout more than to change minds. And what's your prediction at the moment? Oh, God, you're always asking me for predictions. I don't even know what I'm having for breakfast in the morning. Look, I think I think it's important. I think it's useful to follow the political science models on this because they've actually been pretty accurate, even in the Trump era. And they tell you that the economy plus a couple of other factors matter the most. So they predicted uh, uh, Trump was likely to win about two months ago, and now they predict that he's likely not to. So I give Joe Biden at this moment a slight, uh, slight edge. But I think a lot of things could change.
0: Okay, well. It's been a interesting discussion. I'm sure we'll come back to talk about all of these different political situations many times over the years ahead, if and when these elections will happen. In the meantime, I think we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Piotr?
2: Just yesterday, I bought the Polish edition of the international bestseller by Kai Strittmatter a German expert in China. It's a book published two years ago under the English title We Have Been Harmonized, Life in China Surveillance State. And um, I, I think this is a very timely and a little bit scary reading. I've just started, but I, I can strongly recommend it.
0: Great. What about you, Tara?
3: I'm reading Andrew small latest paper up on our website on Europe-China relation, the meaning of systemic rivalry.
0: Also, much to be recommended and Jeremy?
4: Oh, my God, Tara, I have begged you to get a life. I'm reading, uh, I just finished uh, this book by Amor Towles called uh, A Gentleman in a Moscow, which is about Russian aristocrat after the revolution who is sentenced to uh, house arrest in the Hotel Metropole, a, a sort of very famous luxury hotel near the Kremlin in Moscow. And it's about the next 30 years that he spends in that hotel and all of the things that he witnesses and does. It's quite an extraordinary book. I have to say it's, it's difficult to describe, but it's so rich in its sort of description and even in its adventures that take place all in this very circumscribed hotel that I feel in the, in the week or so since I finished it, that, that I almost miss reading this book and i'm thinking of reading it again so i would uh recommend it very strongly
0: okay and i have a couple of recommendations one is but that will come out i think as early as next month It's ivan krastev has written a, a kind of very quick and fascinating account of the of how the corona crisis is going to change europe called um, is it tomorrow yet at least that's the working title and we'll definitely invite ivan onto the podcast to talk about that and then I was also inspired by what you were saying, um, Tara, about French politics. Like one of the biggest treats of my lockdown cultural consumption has been the French TV series Baron Noir. And the third season of that has this fictional scenario where kind of professor conspiracy theorist ends up running for for the presidency and upending French politics in a very... I hope it's not a, <laughs> um, a precursor. I hope that that life doesn't imitate art and that your scientist doesn't end up playing the same sort of role that this, um, this person played in Baron Noir.
3: No, I was going to say that's not the only similarity uh, between real life and fiction. The slogan that the French president in this TV series you mentioned uses to rally the population around her is France Unie," And this is exactly the slogan that Emmanuel Macron chose uh, during his management of the COVID crisis.
0: Oh dear. <laughs> Um, so let's hope that that life doesn't imitate art the whole way anyway we will put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts if you've enjoyed listening to us please let other people know about it by tweeting about it writing about it on your social media page and above all heading to whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on and giving us a positive rating and review But for now, from Piotr Buras, Tara Varma, Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlena Riedel.